0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. This is yet another in the continuing series of works by Douglas Adams under the banner Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We've got as far as Life, the Universe and Everything and Zaphod Beeblebrox has heard a sound on the otherwise deserted Heart of Gold. He goes to investigate. It's a nasty group of violent robots dismantling his ship. He hides behind a door, but is afraid the door will blow his cover when he tries to sneak into the bridge. He took a series of very shallow breaths and then said as quickly and as quietly as he could, Don, if you can hear me, say so very, very quietly. Very, very quietly, the door murmured, I can hear you. Good. Now... In a moment, I'm going to ask you to open. When you open, I do not want you to say that you enjoyed it. Okay? Okay. And I don't want you to say to me that I've made a simple door very happy or that it is your pleasure to open for me and your satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. Okay? Okay. And I do not want you to ask me to have a nice day. Understand? I understand. Okay, said Zephod, tensing himself. Open now. The door slid open quietly. Zaphod slipped quietly through it. The door closed quietly behind him. Is that the way you like it, mister Beeblebrook? said the door out loud. I want you to imagine, said Davod to the group of white robots who swung round to stare at him at this point, that I have an extremely powerful Kilo Zap blaster in my hand. There was an immensely cold and savage silence. "'The robots regarded him with hideous, dead eyes. "'They stood very still. "'There was something intensely macabre about their appearance, "'especially to Zaphod, who had never seen one before "'or even known anything about them.' The Cricket Wars belonged to the ancient past of the galaxy, and Zephyr had spent most of his early history lessons plotting how he was going to have sex with a girl in the cyber cubicle next to him, and since his teaching computer had been an integral part of this plot, it had eventually had all its history circuits wiped and replaced with an entirely different set of ideas, which had then resulted in it being scrapped and sent to the home for degenerate cybermats, of whether it was followed by the girl, who had inadvertently fallen deeply in love with the unfortunate machine, with the result, a. that Zephod never got near her, and b. that he missed out on a period of ancient history that would have been of inestimable value to him at this moment. He stared at them in shock. It was impossible to explain why, but their smooth and sleek white bodies seemed to be the utter embodiment of clean, clinical evil." From their hideously dead eyes to their powerful, lifeless feet, they were clearly the calculated products of a mind that simply wanted to kill. Zaphod gulped in cold fear. They had been dismantling part of the rear bridge wall and had forced a passage through some of the vital innards of the ship. Through the tangled wreckage, Zaphod could see, with a further and worse sense of shock, that they were tunneling towards the very heart of the ship, the heart of the improbability drive that had been so mysteriously created in thin air, the heart of gold itself. The robot closest to him was regarding him in such a way as to suggest that it was measuring every smallest particle of his body, mind and capability, and when it spoke... What it said seemed to bear this impression out. Before going on to what it actually said, it is worth recording at this point that Zaphod was the first living organic being to hear one of these creatures speak for something over ten billion years. If he had paid more attention in ancient history lessons and less to his organic being, he might have been more impressed by this honour. The robot's voice was like its body, cold, sleek and lifeless. It had almost a cultured rasp to it. It sounded as ancient as it was. It said, You do have a kilo zap blaster in your hand. Zaphod didn't know what it meant for a moment, but then he glanced down at his own hand and was relieved to see that what he had found clipped to a wall bracket was indeed what he had thought it was. "'Yeah,' he said, in a kind of relieved sneer, which is quite tricky. "'Well, I wouldn't want to overtax your imagination, robot.' For a while, nobody said anything, and Zaphod realised that the robots were obviously not here to make conversation, and then it was all up to him. "'I can't help noticing that you parked your ship,' he said, with a nod of one of his heads in the appropriate direction. Uh, "'Through mine.' There was no denying this. Without regard for any proper kind of dimensional behaviour, they had simply materialised their ship precisely where they wanted to be, which meant that it was simply locked through the heart of gold as if it were nothing more than two combs. Again, they made no response to this, and Zephot wondered if the conversation would gather any momentum if he phrased his part of it in the form of questions. Uh, "'Haven't you?' he added. "'Yes,' replied the robot. Uh, okay, said Zaphod. So, what are you cads doing here? Silence. Robots, said Zaphod, what are you robots doing here? We have come, rasped the robot, for the gold of the bale. Zaphod nodded. He waggled his gun to invite further elaboration. The robot seemed to understand this. The gold bale is part of the key we seek continued the robot, to release our masters from cricket. Zaphod nodded again and waggled his gun again. The key, continued the robot simply, was disintegrated in time and space. The golden bale is embedded in the device which drives your ship. It will be reconstituted in the key. Our masters shall be released. The universal readjustment will continue. Zaphod nodded again. Uh, ''What are you talking about?'' he said. A slightly pained expression seemed to cross the robot's totally expressionless face. He seemed to be finding the conversation depressing. ''Obliteration,'' it said. ''We seek the key,'' it repeated. ''We already have the wooden pillar, the steel pillar and the perspex pillar. In a moment we will have the gold bail.'' ''No, you won't.'' ''We will,'' stated the robot. ''No, you won't. It makes my ship work.'' ''In a moment,'' repeated the robot patiently, ''we will have the gold belt.'' ''You will not,'' said Zaphod. ''And then we must go,'' said the robot, in all seriousness, ''to a party.'' ''Oh,'' said Zaphod, startled. ''Can I come?'' ''No,'' said the robot. ''We are going to shoot you.'' ''Oh, yeah,'' said Zaphod, waggling his gun. ''Yes,'' said the robot. ''And they shot him.'' Zephyr was so surprised that he had to shoot him again before he fell down. Chapter 10 Sh said Slati Bartfast, listen and watch. Night had now fallen on ancient cricket. The sky was dark and empty. The only light was coming from the nearby town, from which pleasant convivial sounds were drifting quietly on the breeze. They stood beneath a tree from which heady fragrances wafted around them. Arthur squatted and felt the informational illusion of the soil and the grass. He ran his fingers through it. The soil seemed heavy and rich, the grass strong. It was hard to avoid the impression that this was a thoroughly delightful place in all respects. The sky was, however, extremely black and seemed to Arthur to cast a certain chill over the otherwise idyllic, if currently invisible, landscape. Still, he supposed, it's a question of what you're used to. He felt a tap on his shoulder and looked up. Slarty Barfast was quietly directing his attention to something down the other side of the hill. He looked and could just see some faint lights dancing and waving and moving slowly in their direction. As they came nearer, sounds became audible too, and soon the dim lights and noises resolved themselves into a small group of people who were walking home across the hill towards the town. They walked quite near the watchers beneath the tree, swinging lanterns which made soft and crazy lights dance among trees and grass, chattering contentedly, and actually singing a song about how terribly nice everything was, how happy they were, how much they enjoyed walking on the farm, and how pleasant it was to be going home to see their wives and children, with a lilting chorus to the effect that the flowers were smelling particularly nice at this time of year, and that it was a pity the dog had died. Seeing that it liked them so much. Arthur could almost imagine Paul McCartney sitting with his feet up by the fire on an evening, humming it to Linda and wondering what to buy with the proceeds, and thinking probably Essex. The masters of cricket breathed Slarty Bartfast in sepulchral tones. Coming as it did so hard upon the heels of his own thoughts about Essex, this remark caused Arthur a moment's confusion. Then the logic of the situation imposed itself on his scattered mind, and he discovered that he still didn't understand what the old man meant. What? he said. The masters of cricket, said Slotty Budfast again, and if his breathing had been sepulchral before, this time he sounded like someone in Hades with bronchitis. The masters of cricket. Arthur peered at the group and tried to make sense of what little information he had at his disposal at this point. The people in the group were clearly alien, if only because they seemed a little tall, thin, angular and almost as pale as to be white, but otherwise they appeared remarkably pleasant. A little whimsical perhaps, one wouldn't necessarily want to spend a long coach journey with them, but the point was that if they deviated in any way from being good straightforward people, it wasn't being perhaps too nice, rather than not nice enough. So why all this rasping lug work from Slarty Bardfast, who would seem more appropriate to a radio commercial for one of those nasty films about chainsaw operators taking their work home with them? Then this cricket angle was a tough one too. He hadn't quite fathomed the connection between what he knew as cricket with a C and what Slarty Bardfast interrupted his train of thought at this point, as if sensing what was going through his mind. The game you know as cricket, he said, and his voice still seemed to be wandering lost in the subterranean passages, is just one of those curious freaks of racial memory which can keep images alive in the mind's eons after their true significance has been lost in the mists of time. Of all the races in the galaxy, only the English could possibly revive the memory of the most terrific wars ever to sunder the universe and transform it into what I'm afraid is generally regarded as an incomprehensibly dull and pointless game. Rather fond of it myself, he added, but in most people's eyes you have been inadvertently guilty of the most grotesque bad taste, particularly the bit about the little red ball hitting the wicket. Hmm, said Arthur with a reflective frown, to indicate that his cognitive synapses were coping with this as best they could. Hmm, and these, said Slutty Bartfast, slipping back into cryptic guttural and indicating the group of cricket men who had now walked past them are the ones who started it all, and it will start tonight. Come, we will follow and see why they slipped out from underneath the tree and followed the cheery party along the dark hill path their natural instinct was to tread quietly and stealthily in pursuit of their quarry though as they were simply walking through a recorded informational illusion they could as easily have been playing euphoniums and wearing woad for all the notice their quarry would have taken of them Arthur noticed that a couple of members of the party were now singing a different song. It came lilting back to them through the soft night air. It was a sweet romantic ballad which would have netted McCartney, Kent and Essex and enabled him to put on a fair offer for Hampshire. "'You must surely know,' said Slotty Budfaster to Ford, "'what it is that is about to happen.' "'Me?' said Ford. "'No. "'Did you not learn ancient galactic history when you were a child?' "'I was in the cyber-cubicle behind Zayford," said Ford. "'It was very distracting, which isn't to say "'that I didn't learn some pretty stunning things.' "'At this point Arthur noticed a curious feature to the song "'that the party were singing. "'The Middle Eight Bridge, "'which could have had McCartley firmly consolidated in Winchester "'and gazing intently over the Tester Valley "'to the rich pickings of the new forest beyond, "'had some curious lyrics.' The songwriter was referring to meeting with a girl not under the moon or beneath the stars, but above the grass, which struck Arthur a little prosaic. He then looked up again at the bewildering black sky and had the distinct feeling that there was an important point here. If only he could grasp what it was. Gave him a feeling of being alone in the universe, and he said so. "'No,' said Slarty fast, with a slight quickening of his step, "'the people of Cricket have never thought to themselves, "'we are alone in the universe. "'They are surrounded by a huge dust cloud, you see, there's single sun with its single world, "'and they were right out there on the uttermost edge, "'the eastern edge of the galaxy. "'Because of the dust cloud, "'there has never been anything to see in the sky, "'as night is totally blank.' That During the day, there is the sun, but you can't look directly at it, so they don't. They are hardly aware of the sky. It's as if they had a blind spot which extended 180 degrees from horizon to horizon. You see, the reason why they have never thought we are alone in the universe is that until tonight, they don't know about the universe. Until tonight. He moved on, leaving the words ringing in the air behind him. ''Imagine,'' he said, ''never even thinking we are alone, simply because it has never occurred to you to think that there's any other way to be.'' He moved on again. ''I'm afraid this is going to be a little unnerving,'' he added. As he spoke, they became aware of a very thin, roaring scream, high up in the sightless sky above them. They glanced upwards in alarm, but for a moment or two could see nothing.'' Then Arthur noticed that the people in the party in front of them had heard the noise, but that none of them seemed to know what to do with it. They were glancing around themselves in consternation, left, right, forwards, backwards, even at the ground. It never occurred to them to look upwards. The profoundness of the shock and horror that emanated a few moments later when the burning wreckage of a spaceship came hurtling and screaming out of the sky and crashed about half a mile from where they were standing was something that you had to be there to experience. Some speak of the heart of gold in hushed tones. Some of the starship Bistromath Many speak of the legendary and gigantic starship Titanic, a majestic and luxurious cruise liner launched from the great ship-building asteroid complex's artifact of Hull some hundreds of years ago now, and with good reason. It was sensationally beautiful, staggeringly huge, and more pleasantly equipped with than any ship in what now remains of history – See note below on the campaign for real time, but it had the misfortune to be built in the very earliest days of improbability physics, long before this difficult and cursed branch of knowledge was fully or at all understood. The designers and engineers decided in their innocence to build a prototype improbability field into it, which was meant supposedly to ensure that it was infinitely improbable that anything would ever go wrong with any part of the ship they did not realize that because of the quasi-reciprocal and circular nature of all improbability calculations anything that was infinitely improbable was actually very likely to happen almost immediately the starship Titanic was a monstrously pretty sight, as it lay beached like a silver Arcturian megavoid whale amongst the laser-lit tracery of its constructional gantries, a brilliant cloud of pins and needles of light against the deep interstellar blackness. But when launched, it did not even manage to complete its very first radio message, an SOS, before undergoing a sudden and gratuitous total existence failure. However, the same event which saw the disastrous failure of one science in its infancy also witnessed the apotheosis of another. It was conclusively proven that more people watched the 3D coverage of the launch than actually existed at the time, and this has now been recognised as the greatest achievement ever in the science of audience research. Another spectacular media event at the time was the supernova, which the star Ysoldins underwent a few years later. Ysoldins is a star around which most of the galaxy's major insurance underwriters live, or rather lived. But whilst these spaceships and other great ones which come to mind, such as the Galactic Fleet battleships, the GSS Daring, the GSS Audacity and the GSS Suicidal Insanity, are all spoken of with awe, pride, enthusiasm, affection, admiration, regret, jealousy, resentment, in fact most of the better known emotions, the one which regularly commands the most actual astonishment was Cricket One the first spaceship ever built by the people of cricket. This is not because it was a wonderful ship. It wasn't. It was a crazy piece of near junk. It looked as if it had been knocked up in somebody's backyard, and this was, in fact, precisely where it had been knocked up. The astonishing thing about the ship was not that it was one, well, it wasn't, but that it was done at all. The period of time which had elapsed between the moment that the people of Cricket had discovered that there was such a thing as space and the launching of the first spaceship was almost exactly a year. Board Prefect was extremely grateful as he strapped himself in that this was just another informational illusion and that he was therefore completely safe. In real life it wasn't a ship, he would have set foot in, for all the rice wine in China. "'Extremely rickety,' was one phrase which sprang to mind, and "'Please, bear, get out!' was another. "'This is going to fly?' said Arthur, giving gaunt looks at the lashed-together pipework and wiring which festooned the cramped interior of the ship. Slarty Bardfast assured him that it would, and they were perfectly safe, and that it was all going to be extremely instructive, and not a little harrowing. Ford and Arthur decided just to relax and be harrowed. Why not, said Ford, go mad. In front of them, and of course totally unaware of their presence, for the very good reason that they weren't actually there, were the three pilots. They'd also constructed the ship. They'd been on the hill path that night, singing wholesome, heartwarming songs. Their brains had been very slightly turned by the nearby crash of the alien spaceship. They had spent weeks stripping every tiniest, last secret out of the wreckage of that burnt-up spaceship, and all the while singing lilting spaceship-stripping ditties. They had then built their own ship, and this was it. This was their ship, and they were currently singing a little song about that too, expressing the twin joys of achievement and ownership. Chorus was a little poignant and told their sorrow that their work had kept them such long hours in the garage, away from the company of their wives and children, who had missed them terribly, but had kept them cheerful by bringing them continual stories of how nice the puppy was growing up. Pow! They took off. They roared into the sky like a ship that knew precisely what it was doing. No way, said Ford a little while later after they had recovered from the shock of acceleration and they were climbing up out of the planet's atmosphere. No way, he repeated. Does anyone design and build a ship like this in a year? No matter how motivated, I don't believe it. Prove it to me and I still won't believe it. He shook his head thoughtfully and gazed out of the tiny port at the nothingness outside it. The trip passed uneventfully for a while. Slarty Bartfast fast wound them through it. Very quickly, therefore, they arrived at the inner perimeter of the hollow, spherical dust cloud, which surrounded their sun and home planet, occupying, as it were, the next orbit out. It was more as if there was a gradual change in the texture and consistency of space. The darkness seemed now to thrum and ripple past them. It was a very cold darkness, a very black and heavy darkness. It was the darkness of the night sky of cricket. The coldness and heaviness and blackness of it took a slow grip on Arthur's heart, and he felt acutely aware of the feelings of the cricket pilots, which hung in the air like a thick static charge. They were now on the very boundary of the historical knowledge of their race. This was the very limit beyond which none of them had ever speculated or even known that there was any speculation to be done. The darkness of the cloud had buffeted at the ship, Inside was a silence of history. Their historic mission was to find out that there was anything or anywhere on the other side of the sky from which the wrecked spaceship could have come. Another world may be strange and incomprehensible, though this thought was to their enclosed minds of those who had lived beneath the sky of cricket. History was gathering itself to deliver another blow. Still the darkness thrummed at them, the blank enclosing darkness. It seemed closer and closer, thicker and thicker, heavier and heavier, and suddenly it was gone. They flew out of the cloud. They saw the staggering jewels of the night in their infinite dust, and their minds sang with fear. For a while they floated on, motionless against the starry sweep of the galaxy, itself motionless against the infinite sweep of the universe. And then they turned round. It'll have to go, said the men of cricket as they headed back home. On the way back they sang a number of tuneful and reflective songs on the subjects of peace, justice, morality, culture, sport, family, life and the obliteration of all other life forms. "'So, you see,' said Slarty Barb fast slowly stirring his artificially constructed coffee, and thereby also stirring the whirlpool interfaces between real and unreal numbers, between the interactive perceptions of mind and universe, and thus generating the restructured matrices of implicitly enfolded subjectivity which allowed his ship to reshape the very concept of time and space, how it is.' ''Yes,'' said Arthur. ''Yes,'' said Ford. ''What do I do?'' said Arthur, ''with this piece of chicken?'' Slouty Bartfast glanced at him gravely. ''Toy with it,'' he said. ''Toy with it!'' He demonstrated with his own piece. Arthur did so and felt the slight tingle of a mathematical function thrilling through the chicken leg as it moved four-dimensionally through what Slarty Barnfast had assured him was five-dimensional space. Overnight, said Slotty Balfast, the whole population of cricket was transformed from being charming, delightful, intelligent, if whimsical, interpolated Arthur. Ordinary people, said Slotty Balfast, into charming, delightful, intelligent, whimsical, manic xenophobes. The idea of the universe didn't fit into their world picture, so to speak. They simply couldn't cope with it, and so charmingly, delightfully, intelligently, whimsically, if you like, they decided to destroy it. "'What's the matter now?' "'I don't like this wine very much,' said Arthur, sniffing it. "We'll send it back. It's all part of the mathematics of it.' Arthur did so. He didn't like the topology of the waiter's smile, but he never liked graphs anyway.' "'Where are we going?' said Ford. "'Back to the room of informational illusions,' said Snarty Bartfast, "'rising and patting his mouth with the mathematical representation of a paper napkin. "'For the second half!' "'Chapter Twelve. "'The people of cricket,' said his high-judgmental-supremacy judiciary-pag L.I.V.R., the learned, impartial and very relaxed chairman of the Board of Judges at the Cricket War Crimes Trial— "'Oh, well, you know, but they're just a bunch of real sweet guys, you know, "'who just happen to want to kill everybody. "'Hell, I feel the same way some mornings. Shit!' "'Okay,' he continued, swinging his feet up onto the bench in front of him "'and pausing a moment to pick a thread off his ceremonial beach loafers, "'so you won't necessarily want to share a galaxy with these guys. "'This was true.' The cricket attack on the galaxy had been stunning. Thousands and thousands of huge cricket warships had leapt suddenly out of hyperspace and simultaneously attacked thousands and thousands of major worlds, first seizing vital material supplies for building the next wave and then calmly zapping those worlds out of existence. The galaxy, which had been enjoying a period of unusual peace and prosperity at the time, reeled like a man getting mugged in a meadow. I mean, continued Judiciary Pag, gazing around the ultramodern. This was ten billion years ago, when ultramodern meant lots of stained steel and brushed concrete and huge courtroom. These guys are just obsessed. This too was true, and is the only explanation anyone has yet managed to come up with for the unimaginable speed with which the people of cricket had pursued their new and absolute purpose, the destruction of everything that wasn't cricket. It is also the only explanation for their bewildering sudden grasp of all the hyper-technology involved in building their thousands of spaceships and their millions of lethal white robots. Uh, These had really struck terror into the hearts of everyone who had encountered them. In most cases, however, the terror was extremely short-lived, as was the person experiencing the terror. They were savage, single-minded flying battle machines. They wielded formidable multifunctional battle clubs, which brandished one way, would knock down buildings, and brandished another way, fired blistering Omnidestructo Zap rays, and brandished a third way, launched a hideous arsenal of grenades, ranging from minor incendiary devices to maxi-slaughter hypernuclear devices, which could take out a major sun. Bad lack of time stops the play of this performance. Come back soon for the next. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.